Welcome to a special episode of Talking in Vain, the official podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. INS podcasts are supported by BD, helping all people live healthy lives. Visit them at www.bd.com. In this episode, is the current shortage of saline impacting your practice? The main manufacturing facilities that supply the United States with small volume perennial solutions were severely impacted when Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico in September 2017. In some areas of the United States, supplies of, of end-user products are completely depleted. I spoke with home infusion pharmacists as well as a director of clinical practice for a large health system to learn what has been done to minimize the impact of the shortage for the nurse and the patient. Dan Heaton, clinical pharmacist with Intermountain Home Care and Hospice in South Jordan, Utah, gave some insight into the impact of small volume shortages. Here's part of the conversation with Dan Heaton. Dan, thanks for speaking with me today. What are you currently experiencing in the terms of saline shortages? So shortage problems is the small volumes right now. Okay. Luckily, we have, I mean, I, I've heard of shortage issues and hard to get, but so far we haven't had to change practice or do anything different with the large volumes. Right now, as of today, we are out of 150 mil NS bags and 250 mil what does it do for the nurses then? They, they, do they have to change how they're administering drugs? Um, yes. Yes, so okay. Most of the time we try to make it, um, you know, seamless, sightless for the nurses. When we have a drug that's only stable for three days and we can't use a system, you know, the mix-in-the-home type system, mm-hmm. we have to go to where we put it in the saline and we can only have a three-day supply send out. So that means for the patient, a lot more frequent deliveries. You know, the costs go up because we're sending a driver out every three days rather right. than once a week. Um, and the nurses, we just have to make sure the patients understand that they're not mixing it beforehand or you know, mm-hmm. any changes in the supplies. So probably the best example would be, say, for example, the you, we're mixing a drug in 150 mils NS. Um, if that's unavailable, we either look at the stability data, and if we have the right concentrations, we'll just put it in a different size bag, mm-hmm. so a 250 mil NS, or if we need to keep the, the volume very similar, we put it in an empty bag and then just pump in the remaining NS volume, so it's a lot more work on our compounders. Um, you know, they're not using a stock bag now, they're mm-hmm. adding both the diluent and the drug, um, but, you know, for the patient and nurse, it might not look different, but it's in an empty bag to start with rather than a stock fluid bag. Most of us are trained to look at, you know, what's the drug, what's the dose, but that volume will be a huge issue if it changes. What about changing to different kinds of pumps? Are, do you use a lot of syringe pumps or elastomeric, any of those kind of devices? Yep, we use a lot of elastomeric devices. And that brings up the point then, too, that there are other options available to patients and their providers, such as? the oral medications, intramuscular or sub-Q as well can be used on some things. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Like with uh, 
antibiotics with the short stability stuff. Mm-hmm. If you have a patient that lives out of the area, they have to use UPS or some other shipping methods. Sometimes it's as simple as calling the doctor and saying, you know, can we switch to this antibiotic that has similar coverage? Would this be a acceptable? And then you can kind of get a better stability, maybe a smaller volume, mm-hmm. an IV push, something like that. Would that be more of the pharmacy responsibility to, to say, you know, we need to talk, contact the doctor or the provider and say, this is becoming a short supply and we need to change this? Yep, for okay. sure. Nurses are probably going to see that change, but they're not necessarily going to be the ones that institute it. Yeah, but, I mean, that's kind of how it should be, though. If mm-hmm. we have the product that we're sending out and we can't supply it, we have to come up with a, an option. Exactly. Well, I certainly appreciate your time. and. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for letting me, uh, what, give a voice, I guess. I, I appreciate you doing that. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. Next, Valerie Grapenstetter, Associate Director of Clinical Practice for Rochester Regional Health in Rochester, New York, describes how their organization not only prepared for, but anticipated the shortage. Thanks for speaking with me, Val. Where did you see your biggest challenges for dealing with the saline shortage? Was it in acute care or long-term care? did do was look in particular at our long-term care sites to make sure that we were supporting them, partly because of scope. Um, and particularly LPNs, you know, in New York State, they are not to provide IV push medications. Mm-hmm. So when we got our syringe pumps in, we looked specifically at those areas and were able to run usage reports utilizing our electronic health record to figure out who, was in the mo- who had the most need and looking at, you know, what medications needed to be changed so that we supported our long-term care facilities and, you know, provided the safe care that our patients needed to get them the pumps. So at no point did our long-term care facilities have to give any type of IV push medication. They've all been successfully transitioned to the IV syringe pumps if needed. Um, what yeah. about like elastomeric pumps too? Are, are the facility, are you using those or is it basically gone to syringe pumps? It's, they're basically all the syringe pumps. Okay, and the same then with your acute care facilities? Yep, the same uh, pump. So it was fairly easy for us because it's basically just adding a channel. Oh, and not having really to change cool. the actual like brain of the pump. Our main goal was to make sure we got the appropriate tubing because syringe pump tubing can be a little tricky, especially in priming. So we were very conscientious in the tubing that we chose so that because this was new for a lot of individuals, we wanted to make sure that we got the tubing that was going to be the best for us, the best for our end users, which is our nurses, and then really just getting that channel add-on to be able to utilize the syringe pump. So you could almost say then that possibly the biggest population affected, if you will, of nurses was your long-term care facility? I think they both were kind of, okay. you know, equally affected. But in terms of a practice change, per se, our long-term care facilities, this was a little bit of a change for them. But, you know, we were able to provide them with the education that they needed. Our education team came together and created a train-the-trainer model and created a competency to make sure that staff was adequately prepared to use this new mode of delivering their medications. And we were able to track all that education using our learning management system. So we were able to leverage a lot of the things that we have in place already to support the staff and the patients. When did you start doing this transition? When was it first implemented? Early October. So really had to happen fast. Yes, it did. So our pharmacy department actually was 
tracking with you know all of the weather changes and things that were going on. We kind of anticipated this potentially was going to be an issue. We knew that that's where our main manufacturer was out of. So this was something that they were watching and then you know, I think about the second week of October where we had kind of, you know, come together and said, all right, this is going to be something that's impactful for us and we need to get together a game plan. And we were able to come together truly very collaboratively with a variety of disciplines. Our pharmacy has been amazing. Our Care Connect team, that's our electronic health record. So they were there from the beginning, our infection preventionists, our bedside nurses, our physicians. So we definitely pulled together a multidisciplinary team to figure out what was the best thing for us to do. And we were able to kind of start that in one of our acute care facilities. You know, we engaged our project management team, which was an amazing thing because we were able to have a dedicated project manager that kind of kept us on track. You know, we're, we're clinicians and that part of our, our process can sometimes be forgotten. So we leaned on and went to our experts and they were able to help us kind of formulate our meeting minutes, making sure that we were tracking action items, following through. We kept weekly meetings, daily meetings up in the beginning, but transitioned to weekly meetings after that with our entire healthcare system, utilizing our project management team to make sure that we were all kind of staying connected, updating each other on where we were at with supplies, what is it that we need, when are we transitioning from, you know, IV push to the IV pumps, you know, how is everybody looking pharmacy-wise, What's our current status? What are we going to need to change? So we were very methodical in the way that we approached this. Have you seen any change in the maintenance of IV catheters, central devices, anything? Has, has normal saline flushing been affected? That has not been a problem for us in terms of being able to get that. The electronic medical records, I'm so impressed with that. that oh, yeah. How that works. That's just incredible. So like if a... Uh, a physician would order, say, some medication in 100 cc's over an hour, something's going to pop up and say, you know what, that's been changed too. Yes. The same kind of mechanism as using like a, a best practice advisory. Um, so, we, you know, we were able to kind of mirror that type of ability within our system to utilize that specifically for this. So let's say, you know, a provider ordered Zosin 2.25, you know, and that was one of the medications listed as being transitioned to IV push, they would immediately get, you know, kind of like that advisory that popped up that said, this medication has been transitioned, um, you know, these are the options that you have in ordering, and it would allow them to pick one of the options that we had available at that time. And then whatever the um, administration or reconstitution um, or constitution directions were, they were part of that order so that when I was a bedside nurse and I pulled my medication out of our dispensing systems, there was also a notification that popped up within our that system as well. So if I'm a nurse and I go to pull my antibiotic, I'm also going to get an advisory to tell myself, oh, hey, this medication's been transitioned to IV push, you know, please remember, you know, these three things, and then... So not only were we providing that for providers, but also nurses right at the tip of their finger to be able to recognize that this has been a change. So, Valerie, I'm excited that I had a chance to speak with you. I'm, I'm really yeah, glad we could finally connect. Yeah, yeah. Not a problem. Thank All you right. so much. It was great to kind of meet you and talk with you. You as well. Thanks. Yep. Have a Bye great guys. day. You too. Bye. Bye. So from what we've heard, the shortage of saline is having the greatest impact on small volume solutions, the 100 to 250 ml containers. In many cases, manufactured pre-filled normal saline syringes are not in short supply. However, that may not be the case in some rural areas. 
The important thing to remember during this time of shortage is always adhere to your safe injection practices. Many thanks to Valerie Grapenstetter, DNP Associate Director of Clinical Practice of the Rochester Regional Health in Rochester, New York, for taking the time to speak with us today. I'd also like to thank Dan Heaton. He is a PharmD with Intermountain Healthcare, Home Care and Hospice Infusion Services that we spoke with earlier in the podcast for their thoughtful insight into the pharmacy aspect of the saline shortage. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe to INS Podcasts on iTunes and never miss an episode. INS Podcasts are supported through an educational grant by BD. Music is the property of Scott Holmes and is used with his permission. INS Podcasts are produced by James Priggy and hosted by me, Michelle Barrett. Show notes, links to our sponsors, information on the topic of today's episode, and more are posted on our website at www.ins1.org. Follow us on Facebook at Infusion Nurses Society. On Instagram, we're Infusion Nurses Society. And we're tweeting on Twitter at INS1ORG. So until next time, keep calm and IV on.